On today's episode of the Nerd by Word podcast, we're doing a kaiju-sized episode as we look at Godzilla vs. Kong. Plus, Nerd News talks about The Last of Us and Black Widow, and Nerd Commendations take us to the Immortal Hulk and Phoenix Rising. Konnichiwa, and welcome to a kaiju-sized episode of the Nerd Byword. Today, we are all set to break down our thoughts and reactions to the latest MonsterVerse blockbuster, Godzilla vs. Kong. But first, let's head over to the news desk, where our senior Sony gaming correspondent has an update on a popular and polarizing franchise. Dave? Yeah, let's go ahead and talk Last of Us, because apparently there is... Uh, some movement on the franchise in a way that really nobody expected. Um, So originally in 2013 for the PS3, we had the release of The Last of Us. uh, And now they are talking about actually releasing a remake of the first Last of Us game in the wake of the sequel, The Last of Us Part II, which released in 2020. Now, according to Bloomberg, uh, it appears that uh, within... Uh, Naughty Dog, there has been sort of a small group of uh, developers that have been working uh, sort of quietly um, on this project for a while. Uh, According to Bloomberg, this group has been uh, referred to as Naughty Dog South, jokingly, internally. Um, But now Sony is actually putting a little bit more uh, money where their mouth is and is actually fully backing this project and more developers are working on it. And so it appears that there is a remake in development now with Naughty Dog proper at the helm with Sony's full financial backing for a full PS5 remake of The Last of Us. And I have to ask the question, why? I'm, I'm kind of perplexed by the decision to actually remake the first Last of Us game. Now, admittedly, the game came out in 2013. So, you know, obviously it's been eight years and technology has changed. On the flip side, though, there was a very successful, very beautiful remaster of the first Last of Us that was released to PlayStation 4. Now, you add to that the fact that The Last of Us Part 2 was, well, as you mentioned, quite polarizing when it was released and a lot of fans were unhappy with the direction that the sequel took. And I have to ask, what exactly is you know Sony angling to do here by remaking the first Last of Us and releasing it, uh, it probably uh, as a full-priced game on the PlayStation 5? I, I really don't understand the thinking here. Naughty Dog is one of the top developers working on exclusive PlayStation content. And rather than regurgitating a game from eight years ago, Naughty Dog should really be leading the charge and developing new games. Clearly, they have a proven track record. Clearly, they could be making sequels to other games uh, rather than remaking this one or even bringing in some new intellectual property. I just don't understand uh, Sony's obsession with the first Last of Us. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, so totally outside looking in on this one, not a Sony gamer, consumer, So, but I, I know enough about it peripherally that, that it, it, it's it's 
you know, a big name title, the show is in development, all that. So I know enough just by glancing at headlines to, to know about it. But um, and, and we touched on this a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the, the Skyward Sword remake. Uh, of the Legend of Zelda, and and now um, having played Breath of the Wild and kind of you know immersing myself into the mythos and uh, you know the stories of Hyrule, I, I'm a little bit more informed, and it, it's just like puzzling as to why we continue to go backwards instead of going forwards. You know, um, I, I'm going to need them to you know ramp up the the work on a sequel to breath of the wild rather than go back and remaster an old game but uh, this one even more so i think because you know skyward sword it's been 10 years and they haven't really touched it since then but if you're if you're saying that they have a ps4 remaster that's pretty recent why in the world are they doing this again uh you know just for a, a next-gen console it's just really really puzzling and this is not winning me over towards Team Sony at all. And really what it comes down to, to me in a lot of ways, is simply this. I'm not opposed to The Last of Us being available for PlayStation 5 in some way. But let's go ahead and look at you know the esteemed competition uh, at Xbox, which has such a fantastic backwards compatibility program, which I think is much more a model of how you keep older games alive and in the in the public conscience so hey if you want to take that remaster from the playstation 4 and you know make it available make it playable on the playstation 5 then you know more power to you i'm all about game preservation i i hate that so many video games get lost in this generational shift from console to console but you know taking this game which just had a very recent remaster and remaking it for the PlayStation 5, it just it reeks of cash grab. And and that is super, super regrettable to me. I just I find that to be such a puzzling and 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 creatively bankrupt decision ultimately. Here's here's a harebrained crazy idea. Why not take all this energy and manpower towards making more PS5 units so more can be available? Like you're you're making all these games for the console and all these things and worrying about updating it for the next generation to consoles that people can barely get their hands on. So it's just wild to me. And and the same goes to the Series X. I've been you know, having keep my eyes peeled for forever to get a, a Series S or X, but it's just wild to me that after all this time, it's been you know uh, almost a year now that these consoles have been out, and and they can't. I, I, just blows my mind that more are not readily available. Yeah, I can agree with that. Now, Chris, you're taking us over to the MCU. What have you got? Um, so the seemingly never-ending circus surrounding the release date of the upcoming MCU entry Black Widow appears to have reached its grand finale. So we hope. The film has once again been delayed um, to July 7th of this year, 2021. However, a significant change has come alongside this news, which makes me believe that this is probably the last delay. The movie will also be simultaneously available for immediate in-home viewing uh, via Disney Plus's $30 premiere access option. This option has also been rolled out with films like the live-action Mulan and Raya and the Last Dragon on the streaming platform. 
A Cinnabl- uh, interesting Cinnabon article also reported that this delay has actually helped the speculated box office returns for Black Widow from a meager $45 million domestically in its original May 2020 release to now around $170 million ahead of this July date. Um, while even this figure is a significant downturn from previous Marvel films, when you're thinking in the hundreds of millions and even towards billions uh, in, in returns, it's surely a step in the right direction considering the state of, you know, the entire world for the past year plus. Um, you know, with the, the number of available vaccines for COVID uh, on a significant uptick and a $300 million global opening for the film we're about to discuss in a few moments, Godzilla vs. Kong, it would appear that there is indeed a light at the end of this tunnel for the traditional movie theater going experience. Dave, your thoughts? Yeah, you know what? Forget that jazz. Disney Plus Premier Access is not getting a red cent for me. That is the most absolutely asinine, overpriced methodology uh, of releasing movies. And Disney can forget about my money when it comes to that. They'll get my money the old-fashioned way. Now, I don't feel 100% confident about going into a movie theater at this point. But thankfully, uh, due to this whole uh, COVID situation, I think there's been a real renaissance in drive-in theaters, which is, by the way, how I experienced Godzilla vs. Kong. And so as far as I'm concerned, I'm going to be going to a a local drive-in. I'll be supporting a local business. And I'm not giving Disney Plus Premier Access my 30 bucks. That's ridiculous. I can go to a drive-in theater for significantly less, make a night out of town out of it, and have a really, really good time. That being said, I'm very excited for this movie. I, I think it's super sad that they're tracking the box office return so low. I'm afraid that... Uh, Marvel uh, Studios is going to use this as an excuse uh, to to once again say that maybe, you know, female-led superhero movies don't really put butts in the seats, which, as far as I'm concerned, they do. I was a big fan of, of Captain Marvel. I enjoyed that movie a great deal. I can't wait to see Black Widow. I have been salivating to watch this movie for quite a while, ever since I saw the first trailer. It looks very, very good, has a fantastic cast. So I'm all there for that. Uh, I am not there for Disney Premier Plus Access. $30. When you look over at the Warner side and they're taking these movies that they're releasing simultaneously on streaming and in theaters, and they're doing that without an additional charge on their streaming platform, that is how it's done. Yeah, I I, I tend to agree. Uh, I much prefer, I'm a bit of an an oddball. I much prefer viewing things at home. I'm not very much into the theater going experience. Um, it's, you know, unless I'm going by myself or something or, or with a couple of other friends, but uh, I'm very much content to just sit at home and enjoy something, you know, in the comfort of my own home and, and not having to leave. Um, but, you know, I you're making the pitch for the drive-in and I might be sold. Um, you know, Vaccination does not equal complete immunity, so I'm still super cautious. I, I'm not just, you know, you know, throwing caution to the wind. I'm still super, super careful, uh, and I'm not just running to every movie theater. I wasn't in the first place, but um, I'm, I'm also very, very excited to see this, um, especially this $30 access, early access thing. It's wild to me because... You know, at least it has been the case with Mulan. If you could just wait three months, they just put it on Disney Plus regularly. So why not just 
wait. You know, I know with with MCU films and and things like that, it's like kind of like the water cooler uh, of of the modern era to to just know and keep up and avoid spoilers and everything. But you know, thirty dollars is is a pretty high price for me. Yeah, I totally agree. I was, I was, I read that and I thought to myself, that that is that is steep, guys. Uh, you know, you have a good product there, but you know what? You can't just charge whatever in the world you want to. All right, that wraps up our nerd news segment. Stick around after this, our first break. We're going to be coming at you, Godzilla versus Kong. All right, we are here for our Byword Big Talk today. And as usual, when we review a film, we want to give you our pros, our cons, our likes, our dislikes, and then just let it sit there. And then you make the judgment. Is this something you want to check out? Or is this something you agree with or whatever? We're not here to sway your opinion one way or the other. This is just our instant reactions to it. So three likes, three dislikes. Uh, Dave, what is your first like about Godzilla versus Kong? Well, uh, Godzilla, obviously. I mean, seriously, man, Godzilla is is my main man. I have been a huge Godzilla fan for pretty much most of my life. I watched all of the old Toho movies, usually with my dad. Uh, and so I've seen all of these movies multiple times. I have a very vast DVD and Blu-ray collection of Godzilla movies. I'm a big kaiju fan in general. But Godzilla, for me... Uh, is sort of the ultimate and and has been a major source of entertainment in my life. And I have to say that if this MonsterVerse, uh, these series of movies, have anything going for them, ultimately, I think it's just that they, for once, seem to get Godzilla. Uh, I really need to explain what I mean there. Uh, I remember the first time an American studio tried to make a Godzilla movie, and that was, of course, Roland Emmerich's Godzilla back in the late 90s, which didn't look like Godzilla, didn't feel like Godzilla, didn't smell like Godzilla, didn't have, you know, atomic breath like Godzilla. It was just basically a, a very large sort of T-Rex looking lizard in what seemed to be more of an homage to Jurassic Park than anything else. But this time around, they get Godzilla. Um the look is right. Uh, the design just rocks. It honors the past. It captures the character's essence. The characterization of Godzilla. And yes, he has a personality. The characterization works. It draws on multiple incarnations of Godzilla. There have been Godzilla movies where he's this, this force of nature and destruction. And he's really the antagonist of the story. But there have also been Godzilla movies where he's a protector and he's the protagonist of the story. And I think the MonsterVerse has done a decent job to sort of split the difference and give us this sort of semi-benevolent force of nature, basically. Um, and now, Godzilla gets shortchanged in this particular movie when it comes to having, you know, some kind of arc. Uh, but he feels plenty of uh, plenty expressive and, and even emotive, even though, according to some interviews I've read with the director, uh, Toho did not want Godzilla to emote in this movie. Um, but still, there's there's something about you know the, the 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 shots of his face and his facial expressions, like you can you can kind of read something there. And his power level was awesome here too. I love the scene where he basically uses his atomic breath to drill from Hong Kong down to the hollow earth to find Kong. So Godzilla, to me, was a huge strong point of this movie. 
as a longtime fan of the character, I think they did a very good job capturing the the visual and also uh, the sort of personality essence of the character. So yeah, Godzilla. Yeah, and and as a very very recent um, you know convert to to kaiju films and and the cult of Godzilla, if you will, I, I wholeheartedly agree. I mean, it, it's immediately what won me over. Just you know, I like, I always talk about like being like an intellectual and taking like this deep, thoughtful approach to things, but I kind of divorce myself from that when it comes to movies like this, when it comes to testosterone inducing just awesome action flicks like this. And, and Godzilla hooked me from the word go, you know, even I have my issues with, um, you know the the 2014 Godzilla, but there for by and large I enjoyed the film a lot, and it did a lot to swing me. You know, in preparation for this film, I did a binge of the entire MonsterVerse, and I was hooked on, uh, immediately, and and I was ready to go. Just like the whole mythos surrounding Godzilla, you know, and and just the homages to Japanese culture, it was really tastefully done, and uh, in, in that first film, and and so I was glad to see some justice rendered and i'm going to get into that with some of my dislikes but some justice was rendered for godzilla and he looked freaking awesome yeah absolutely now chris what is your first like for godzilla versus kong oh man it's it's the under undisputed spoilers uh we didn't mention this at the top full spoilers if you haven't seen godzilla versus kong go watch it and then you know, resume this episode. Uh, my my first like and the overwhelming sensation and reaction that I had coming out of viewing this film um, was the undisputed result of, of who was the apex predator, who was the king of the monsters. And Godzilla is the clear winner. He is the goat. He is the best. And particularly the scene where he just has, he does the full Captain Morgan foot on the chest pose on king kong and it's and i heard another podcast talk about it it's like when you fight with your siblings and you just have your foot on their chest like that it was like two siblings and it's just like i'm I'm gonna hold you here until you admit that i'm the better fighter i'm the best you have to admit it and just that stunning visual for me was was everything so i am very very happy um they cut the and Godzilla is the clear winner. Yeah, I know. I'm going to totally agree with you there. Uh, I kind of went into this movie feeling odd about it. I mean, I know there was an old Godzilla versus Kong, but you know, the context of that movie was a little different. But in this particular context, just having seen the previous Godzilla movies and then Kong Skull Island, it seemed to me like uh, there was just no way that you know a giant ape can keep up with this ancient force of nature Godzilla. I mean, it just, it seemed like such a a mismatch. Now they did a good job making the fights, you know, entertaining and all, and I'll talk more about that later. But to me, it was a foregone conclusion that Godzilla should be victorious here. I mean, they had to literally shock King Kong's heart back into beating. <laughs> he he was he was basically he a was goner. Dead. Yeah, he, he was, was a goner. So there was no way that that you know this wasn't the right ending. It, it was absolutely the proper choice to make it clear that that Godzilla was the king of the monsters. Yeah, I totally agree with that. 
All right, Dave, what is, so this one, this one is really interesting to, to me to see on your likes list. And I'm, I'm very curious and excited to dive into this. What is your second like about this film? I actually kind of enjoyed Kong's relationship with, with the little girl in the movie. Uh, I like the idea of you know tying in the the whole deafness and sign language uh, thing in with it as well. You know, Kong has historically been the creature more associated with building a relationship with a human. Substituting a little girl instead of a beautiful, fully grown woman works really well for me. I think it it takes some of that general creepiness out of that kind of hung over some of the other king kong movies when he snatches you know some beautiful woman i think particularly like of the the 1970s version i think that featured like jessica lang or something there was always something really creepy about how how king kong touched her in that movie um kind of just gave me the willies so kind of going with a relationship that has a little bit more innocence to it i think did uh king kong wonders here i think it worked really well for for his character um and although the the girl didn't really have enough to do but look worried i was overall happy with the choice of of giving at least one of the kaiju sort of a human anchor um and and having some kind of relationship with the humans because and we'll get into this later most of the humans in this movie were basically wastes of space now it would have been more fun if they would have leaned even stronger into that relationship and maybe imperiled the girl in the final showdown or something, have Kong try to rescue her, kind of, you know, crank up the the emotional content a little bit. Um, but other than that, I would say overall, I, I was pleased with the change up of how Kong forms a relationship with a human compared to some of the previous movies. Yeah, so I, I'm going to save the, the, the crux of this for my first dislike, but... I wasn't crazy about this because I felt like this was a trope that I had seen before. Just the whole like almost touching fingers thing. Like I was like, man, I I feel like I'm watching mighty Joe young again. Um, So at the same time, the character of King Kong, I did a deep dive today and it was pretty depressing of the racist and unfortunate history of King Kong of of like how really awful the origins of that character were and and you know a lot of it was was attributed to um a lot of white fear of of black males being romantic with white women so it, it was really just like monsterizing you know black people and and, and it, so I I do appreciate like them pivoting to that and and handling it really well to like this sweet tender genuine relationship with this little girl and so that was a huge relief as as silly and as campy as it was sometimes to see that play out on screen also as a father I was like why in the hell are they putting this little girl in danger so I was worried for her um and I was I was angry that the adults in the room were being irresponsible but um this is the trope that bothered me the least but um but I, but and you won me over a little bit by by the points that you made as well, and I think that it was a very much needed update because even and this, I know that Skull Island is a real well liked film by a lot of people in the MonsterVerse, but there are some really uncomfortable racist overtones in that film 
that were, I was cringing most of the film. And I thought that this was a really important update to the entire Kong-centric story. And, and, it, and it made me very, very happy to see that it, it, it kind of had shifted. Yeah, and you know, I can agree with that. There's obviously a lot there's a lot of problematic stuff in the history of King Kong. So pivoting away from that, I think, uh was was the right choice ultimately. Now, Chris, what is your second like for the movie? The the movie's just freaking beautiful, man. Uh it, it's it's just stunning. It's so well done. I, I'm gonna need the the other folks at Warner to take a note when it comes to CGI. Like um, hint, hint, elbow in, in, in the uh, rib cage. This is how you do CGI. You, if they can make the monster verse work, um, largely using CGI monsters, this is how you do it. Um, so it was really, really beautiful. Um, I have my issues with the, the Hong Kong connection I'll touch on in a bit, but the fight scenes in Hong Kong were just gorgeous. The fluorescent neon lights, it was bright. And it, you contrast that with the, the neon blue of, of Godzilla's spikes and all of that. And it, it was one of the most gorgeous films that I've, I've seen. And it may get me out of the house to actually go watch this on the big screen. Um, this, uh, this, this might be the one I know a lot of purists are like, you have to watch it on the big screen. This might be the one that I actually believe that for. Well, you know what? I'll come around to that and say, yeah, this looked really good on the big screen. Uh, as I mentioned earlier in this episode, I watched this at a drive-in theater and uh, it was, it was pretty darn stunning. I, I have to say, I was very, very pleased with it. Um, I think, uh, and this is this will come around to something else I'm going to mention. I think, though, one of the reasons that the special effects were so very good in those scenes where Godzilla and King Kong were present is because there weren't that many. It feels like the movie followed the human characters an awful lot. And so uh, by cutting down on the amount of CG, perhaps, they were able to kind of invest more time and money into those scenes to make them count the most. Um, but yeah, it was absolutely gorgeous. And I really, really did think it looked fantastic on the big screen. All right, Dave, you hinted at it, but what is your final like for the film? Uh, you know what? It's it's It comes down to the fights. They weren't enough fights, but what fights were there were really darn good. Um, kaiju movies basically come in two flavors. They're either disaster flicks or they're battle flicks. And this one was clearly a battle flick, re- predominantly. Uh, I wish there would have been more fighting between kaiju, honestly. Um, I think a lot of the Toho movies have done this better and had, you know, longer fight scenes and really, you know, kind of got into the psychology of the fights and had, you know, multiple rematches and everything. But what was here was good. I really enjoyed the water-based throwdown because Kong was so very clearly out of his element and was still trying to hold his own. The visual of Godzilla tearing through those ships was fun. And as you mentioned, thanks to the lighting, uh, the Hong Kong fight was really, really fresh compared to uh, fights that have happened in previous MonsterVerse movies. Um, now, the Mecha Godzilla fight at the end that you know King Kong won really fell flat for me, but I have multiple reasons for that that I'll get into more in the dislikes. But as far as the fights we got between Kong and Godzilla, I enjoyed them a great deal, and I thought they were really, really well made. Yeah, that was that was a big thing that I was looking for coming in. You know, the the name of the film is Godzilla versus Kong, so I'm thinking these fight scenes have to be on point. And and uh, I totally agree with the ones that you said they did not disappoint. They absolutely delivered on their main 
thing. It was really interesting. I saw an interview and I was going to reference this later, but this seems apropos right now. Um, the director of the film said that he does not see Godzilla as like a good guy or as like a hero. And I was like, Oh, wait a minute. So I clicked, they got me with the clickbait, but the, the, you know, the quote in full context and our, our WWF attitude era fans will appreciate this one. He always sees King Kong as Mick Foley's mankind. And he sees Godzilla as the undertaker. And that totally makes sense to me with how they, they portrayed it in the film. And it added an extra layer to the fight scenes because it was, absolutely pitch perfect for for those fight scenes it was like i was watching you know undertaker throw mick foley off of the top of the hell in the cell so i i totally i totally dug the fight scenes as all as well you know every time you you drop a, a wrestling reference i feel like we need to have an episode where we talk wrestling because i was a big fan in the attitude era myself so it's it's been a hot second since i watched it but i feel like there's an episode in there somewhere all right chris what is your final like of the movie um, I think that there are a lot of attempts to kind of ride the coattails of what the MCU has done and make these connected universes. And, you know, for, for large swaths of it, it doesn't work for me. It doesn't, doesn't quite mesh. And that's not me being, you know, a biased MCU bo- fanboy because I have my criticisms of the MCU. Um but I, I was really happy to see the culmination of this connected universe and the the potential for future films. I'm excited to see what they do with the hollow earth. This is literally an entire new world that we can explore. So I, I, I'm, I was happy to see like this big payoff that I, you know, I binged, but so many people have been watching for years waiting for this moment. And it was really cool to see people, you know, excited about this, this, you know, final climax uh, of this, this film universe. And then not just like, okay, and now we're done. It's like, there's storytelling potential out the wazoo here. And and I'm super excited to see where, where they go, you know, in the future. Yeah, I will echo that. I'm actually really, really excited to see where they go from here. I hope that they draw on, you know, some more uh, kaiju that they haven't really gotten a chance to explore. There are still some really neat kaiju in in Toho's arsenal that could pop up as you know residents of of the Hollow Earth. Um, yeah, it, having followed these movies, I think uh, they they lost themselves a little bit along the way. Um, I, I remember that first Godzilla movie felt felt pretty darn grounded, all things considered. Even though we're talking about giant monsters, you know, beating the snot out of each other. Um, and this one seems to have strayed really far from that. But at the same time, I think there's potential for perhaps a monster verse that is willing to go a little bit over the top in the way the Toho movies do. And and that excites me. I, I'd, I'd like to see them go, you know, full force Toho and see what they can do with, you know, the kind of money and backing and budget that they have to pull off these special effects. So, yeah, I'm excited for the future as well. <laughs> All right, Dave, it's time to hit the negative switch. Um, what is your first dislike of this film? Well, you know what? There is just not enough kaiju action in this movie. It's too focused on on pretty bland human characters. This was basically a two hour hour movie that felt like it had maybe twenty minutes of Godzilla in it, and that's just a crying shame to me. I understand that there are obviously economics involved here. Human actors are a lot cheaper than you know trying to pull off realistic digital monsters. 
And as you observed earlier, the special effects in the scenes that we had with Godzilla and Kong were extremely well made. Toho had obviously an advantage here in that the suit-based effects that they were using and using miniatures and the like are a little more cost-efficient. So it's possible in, in many kaiju movies to have a significant amount more kaiju action. I think of something like, you know... Uh, Godzilla Final Wars, which is, you know, wall-to-wall kaiju action. I think in that movie, there, there's not that much where you see nothing but humans on the screen. There's always something going on with kaiju, and it really is a special movie for that. Um, if you're going to have a Godzilla and Kong movie, where Godzilla and Kong are literally the lead characters, the title characters, I need to see more of those characters. Who wants to see a Captain America movie in which Cap only appears for about 20 minutes? It's it's nonsense. Also, if you're going to focus on human characters, let's make sure they're actually interesting. But I'll, I'll talk more about that later. All right. Here's another wrestling reference. When it comes to the human characters of those movies, they need to know their role and shut their mouth because it was just, it's too much. Like I was, I'm, I was inspired to watch the original 54 Godzilla on HBO max. And like, there is a little bit of building, but uh, for God's sake, it's the origin story. So you're going to have that. But like, you know, once Godzilla starts coming around, it's like, far and few between of those human scenes and their roles are on the sidelines just saying oh my god he's destroying everything that's what you're supposed to do as a human in a godzilla movie um so and that's even (laughs) with my limited experience know your role shut your mouth get off my screen yeah that's exactly right and again you know i understand that there's economic considerations there but i cannot believe uh given that they had a pretty good sense this movie was going to do well based on the performance of previous MonsterVerse movies, that they couldn't have put a little bit more towards having more Godzilla and Kong scenes and focus a little more tightly on those characters. But, you know, what are you going to do? Chris, what is your first dislike of this movie? Uh, For me, it was the anti-Godzilla propaganda. Like, every... And that's part of like having way too much screen time for the humans too. Like it was just all like, let's humanize King Kong and like, oh my God, he's getting beat up. Poor Kong. Like I kept thinking of the Simpsons meme. We're like, stop, stop. He's already dead. And like the humans have to intervene and like, you know, give him the, the whatever that thing is. I don't have a medical background and shock him back to life. And the AED, the defibrillator. Um, and so it, it was just like too much anti-Godzilla propaganda. And it only took like, you know, Millie Bobby Brown is like this big star in Hollywood, you know, Stranger Things. Um, she was fantastic. And Enola Holmes, and she's like this up and coming star. And they relegate her to this like side quest thing. And she's the only one is like, hmm, something seems awry. Nobody else is like, you know, Godzilla has spent two films being our friend and our lethal protector, a la Venom. Um, but this is a weird turn for him surely there's nothing fishy going on. So yeah. So this whole, like this whole pro Kong, you know, campaign and anti Godzilla, I I was not here for. And it, and it made me quite angry. 
Yeah, it's it's incredible to me how fast the world turned on Godzilla after you know he saved the collective bacon of so many people for two movies running. And here is Kong, which is, for all intents and purposes, when it comes to the public, uh, completely uh, an unknown quantity. But suddenly he's supposed to be the hero. And and nobody seems to want to ask the simple question of, hmm, I'm, pardon my French. I wonder what's pissing off Godzilla. <laughs> one character in the entire one world is like... One 17-year-old child. Yeah, one 17-year-old child is like, hmm, I'm worried about Godzilla. Something must be provoking him. And everybody else is like, no. Screw that guy. Nobody <laughs> likes him anyways, right? Like it, it was completely weird and, and out of out of the left field. And I know in a in a battle movie like this, they want to try to, you know, draw one person as the hero and, and one more as the villain. To to which I say, why? Why can't there just be a battle between two equals to find out who's the better one? Why did we have to vilify Godzilla in this? I think there are other approaches to telling this story. Um, but yeah, it, it was as a huge Godzilla fan, uh, having this huge, uh, this huge pro Kong wave of marketing before this movie, it almost tempted me to not even give it a chance. I was like, if you're going to talk trash about Godzilla, <laughs> then I'm not even going to come to the theater for this crap. <laughs> like that's that, that guy I've watched every movie of his, I don't care about Kong. Forget Kong, man. Stop trash talking Godzilla. All right, Dave, what is your second dislike of this film? You know, I'm a huge fan of science fiction, and I've said this uh, many times. I love sci-fi. It's my favorite genre by far. But am I the only one who found that some of the sci-fi stuff in this movie was just kind of baffling? Like, I love the concept of the hollow Earth, but the hollow Earth ship, this, this flying contraption that they used... To, to get there was way too futuristic in the context <laughs> of the previous MonsterVerse movies. Like, you know, especially if you're looking like at the previous Godzilla movie, Godzilla King of the Monsters, like technology there was still fairly realistic. And now suddenly it's like, okay, in, in the last year or two, we just leapt like 50 years ahead, 100 years ahead in technology. Where did this crap come from? The whole company of Apex in general was way over the top in terms of technology. I mean, they seriously had a tunnel from somewhere in the U.S., I forget, all the way to Hong Kong underground tunnel that somehow nobody knows about. Like, how in the world did they pull that one off? How, how do you pull off that kind of construction without getting some permits? Like, that was just bizarre. And then there's like the whole Tron-style glowing colors in their headquarters. And then... You know, you have Millie Bobby Brown, you have Tron-style glow colors as she's infiltrating this Apex headquarters or whatever, and then the synth music kicked in, and I was like, Stranger Things? Like, <laughs> did, did the 80s suddenly rear their head here out of nowhere? Like, I was so confused suddenly. And then there's the issue of Mechagodzilla, which has been such an important part of several Toho movies and has had so many neat designs over the years. And then the design of the character here is just butt ugly. It doesn't land at all. It's not even recognizable as a Mechagodzilla. The fact that the machine was even constructed using Ghidorah's corpse makes it even worse. Because as a fan of Toho movies, I can tell you there is a Mecha Ghidorah, which has appeared in at least uh, two Toho films. You know, if you're going to do Mecha Ghidorah, go all the way and give that thing three heads. But don't take the rotting corpse of Ghidorah and try to tell me it's Mecha Godzilla. It's just that some of the sci-fi stuff was kind of weird for me, Chris. What do you think? 
Yeah, it was super, super weird. Also, can we talk about where the hell is the security at this pristine uh, corporation that is all knowing this like big brother corporation? Number one, they have this like true believer podcast guy who's literally just name dropping where he works and they don't think anything of it. Like he can just like talk shit about them on his podcast and they're like, hmm, maybe we should tighten something up. Maybe we should interview our employees, see who this, you know, squeaky wheel is. Well, in fact, well, Chris, in fairness, Zack Snyder's never sent anybody after us yet. And we've talked a lot of trash about him. So <laughs> That is true. Also, when they actually get in the place, that is the easiest place to break into in any universe. Like there are no security guards. There's no like special codes you have to type in no retina scan you're going to be futuristic but you don't have like the retina scan or handprints or anything like that this is just wild to me yeah the 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 star trek runabouts uh showing up out of nowhere uh were were a definite jarring experience yeah yeah um (laughs) you you got me you got me giggling a little bit now about apex because uh that particular organization that company came out of nowhere in this movie and was just bizarre from top to bottom i was surprised that they didn't try to do something with monarch instead where somebody's like taking that organization and trying to corrupt it or something that that would have been yeah, a little more interesting, perhaps, and and maybe ha- would have given you know uh, some actors that were sorely misused here a little bit more to do. And it's, it's it's also interesting when you said Apex. This reminds me of a point that I was about to make, but slipped my mind. Apex. When we were talking about like the 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 propaganda, the pro Kong, anti Godzilla. And you said um, something to the effect of why do we have to have a hero and one, why don't we have to have a villain? They're, they literally said they're apex predators, like they are the kings of the titans. And it is in their nature to fight to see who is the best. Like how many – I'm a huge like animal planet, like planet earth geek. Like I love watching nature documentaries. You don't have David Attenborough be like, look at this son of a lion over here. Like <laughs> – <laughs> that's just nature it is literally in their nature why do we have to have this whole propaganda scheme you know one over the other it's trash man yeah yeah i, I, I totally agree you got me going now chris i'm gonna no, need a moment <laughs> no, i can hear david attenborough and now we see this sort of <laughs> <laughs> all right chris what is your next dislike on the list i think we're on number two for you now yeah, so I hit it a little bit, but you kind of won me over with the little girl. But there's, like, way too many tropes about this movie. Like, it came off, like, is really goofy and campy. Um, so, like, we have the little girl, and, like, they do the whole, like, almost touching fingers thing. But I, I think it was a much better job than has been done in other films. Um, we have this evil CEO with delusions of grandeur. And then he's a mysterious. He's all of a sudden giving this, like, big monologue and then all of a sudden he's killed by the monster a little bit on the nose buddy um we have the hateful spoiled daddy's girl who's just a bee to everybody um and then you know we have the conspiracy theorists the crazy ones who are actually right so it, this this movie is it, it, wild because you know, we talked about, you know, it, it's it's easier and it's cheaper to have human actors and human scenes. But if you're going to have that much human stuff, make them good characters. Don't make them recycled tropes. Like, and, and you have a, 
a, a strong cast here. Brian, you know, Brian Tyree Henry, he's fantastic. Um, you'll you'll remember him from Miles Morales' father in Into the Spider-Verse. He's also going to be in, in, in Eternals coming up. Fantastic actor. Millie Bobby Brown is taking Hollywood by storm. Like, there are so many talented actors in this movie, and they were just given goofy material to work with. Like, this, the dude that plays the CEO, uh, he's new to me, but he's, like, really good with the crap that he's given. You know, I can totally 100% agree with you on this, Chris. The tropes were strong with this one. It, it did not really try to pay outside of the lines of some of the most typical, you know, tropes that you can come along. Yeah, The evil CEO thing, how often have we seen that at this point? And and I'll have something to say about the hateful, spoiled daddy's girl here in a moment, but that's that's a whole nother story. The conspiracy theorist stuff, I totally agree with you. I think there there would have been... You know, draw outside of the lines a little bit, you know? I mean, the, these human characters need to be interesting if we're going to spend so much time with them. I, I totally agree, Chris. All right, Dave. Final dislike of the film. What you got? To me, Chris, the story never quite coalesced. I mean, the fighting between Kong and Godzilla was was fun, but they put a lot of weight in this movie, as we've already discussed now, on the human characters. But... It never quite came together on that end. You know, one of the biggest rules uh, of a large ensemble movies like this, where you have groups of characters off doing their own thing for big chunks of the story, is that those characters get to come together in the end and do something collectively. And here that didn't really happen. I mean, they were all like in the same neighborhood, basically, in Hong Kong. But the characters never connected, never met, never collaborated. Why, for example, did Millie Bobby Brown's character never meet up with the little girl that had befriended King Kong? How about some smack talk between those two of who was going to win the fight, Godzilla or King Kong? That could have been fun. Or even then them having to kind of mirror Godzilla and Kong and collaborate to solve a problem. You know, Kyle Chandler was wasted here as her as Millie Bobby Brown's father. He popped up in like three scenes and was just standing around looking worried. Let's let's not even talk about wasted scenes. Lance Reddick was in one scene and had one line, and that is an absolute crime, and they should be prosecuted for it. Yeah, it's absolutely atrocious how you can do that to, to this fantastic actor like that. You know, the scientist character, you know, you'll notice that I'm referring to most of these people by their jobs or the actors' names because none of their names stuck with me, not one. But you know the scientist character who had the whole hollow earth theory and was discredited and laughed out of scientific circles because of it? Nothing ever happened about that. Where's his vindication? The hollow earth is real. Let some scientists grovel before him or something. And you know daddy's little girl, as you mentioned, who went on the hollow earth mission? I didn't even realize that she was supposed to be the daughter of the head of Apex until moments before she died. And did Daddy ever even react to her death? Because I don't remember an emotional scene where he cries that his daughter got, like, chopped to bits or whatever happened to her again. Now, I'm not saying the story of the movie couldn't have worked. It's just that everybody, as you mentioned, was flat, one-dimensional, and tropey. And they didn't do anything with these characters. They didn't move them from point A to point B. They didn't have any fun interactions between them. Characters that could have met and given a, a dynamic sort of scene with each other, never occurred. It's like it never occurred to the screenwriter that the, some of these characters need to meet, that some of these characters need to have an arc, that they start in one place, but they need to end in another. Millie Bobby Brown starts the movie believing 
Godzilla is a good guy. She ends the movie believing Godzilla is a good guy. And on the path there, she has learned nothing and has changed nothing. The little girl that befriended King Kong started the movie believing King Kong was the good guy. She ended the movie believing King Kong was the good guy. She went through no development, nothing changed, nothing moved forward. Even, as I mentioned, our scientists who basically should be vindicated. Uh, Nothing. Nothing. These people are static. Nothing happened in the story. The thing we came for... Two giant kaiju beating the snot out of each other. That happened. But if you're going to give me 90 minutes of these human characters, something needs to happen with them, Chris. What do you think? Yeah, for sure. And and here's, here's, here's a kicker, too. One of my favorite characters, one of my favorite actors in this MonsterVerse, Ken Watanabe's uh, Dr. Sarazawa, his... I, I felt like this movie was missing him, and I know that he sacrificed himself in favor of Godzilla in King of the Monsters, but I felt like his presence as like this continual Nick Fury-esque connective tissue type person, I thought I thought that it was lacking in here. Cut to the fact that his son is in this movie, and we don't even know about it until his brain is already fried. Like, there was such... A, such a complete just like so many floating plot lines and then it was just like a bunch of flies or gnats when you swan at them and they just kept flying off in their different directions and there was no conclusion you know i just wanted one one person to say let them fight like like just one oh person. my gosh when he says that in the first oh my god it's so good Oh, goosebumps every time I watch that movie. Let them fight. I love it. I love I it. Love, I love Watanabe. He is absolutely perfect. His his performance in Inception is one of the best things I've ever seen on the screen. Oh, he, he is just, he's magnetic in everything he does. All right, Chris, that brings us to your final dislike of the movie. What have you got? And I, I'm borrowing this from another podcast, Jenkins and Jones, uh, which is a basketball podcast, but, you know, they watch this and had their reactions to it. But, um... And, and they pointed this out to me, and I know that something didn't feel right about this. I felt like something was missing, and they totally pointed it out. And what I really don't like about this movie is the fact that it divorces itself from the roots of where all of this came from. It doesn't. What I liked about um, the first Godzilla film and Uh, even King of the Monsters to a certain degree was how grounded it was in the Japanese origins and paying tribute to the Toho films and paying tribute to the Japanese centric mythos. And what this film chose to do is lean into the big money markets that were going to pay to see this movie in the, in, in the theaters. And so All the battles were based in the U.S. and Hong Kong, China, the two big movie-going money markets. While that Hong Kong scene was beautiful, it was gorgeous, it is not worth the expense, in my opinion, of grounding itself in that Japanese, like, that's who Godzilla is. That's where he comes from. And I felt like it was sorely lacking uh, th- that that grounded nature um, that you hinted at, you know, from the first film. So I'm I'm quite upset that the, this was a very non-Japanese product. Yeah, I agree, and I see no reason at all why Hong Kong could have not been substituted for Tokyo. I mean, have you seen Tokyo? Yeah, it's it's just as gorgeous. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I I 100% agree with you on on this. 
I, I don't understand, especially after, you know, getting rid of this fantastic character in the previous movie that gave it a strong, you know, Japanese connection to then go ahead and do this. Uh, no connection to Japan at all anymore in this movie. I, I dislike that as well. So, yeah, I think the entire climax should have been taking you know, place in Tokyo, period. And I think that would have gone a long way to, to writing that particular wrong, Chris. All right. I know that we ended, Dave, on the negative part. So I just want to bring this back and put a bow on it. Your overall grade of the film, how much did you enjoy it or not so much? You know, I enjoyed it more than I thought I would, but I think that is a, a function, ultimately, of my long association with the Toho Kaiju movies. Those movies are, A, generally pretty silly, B, have a pretty nonsense story on the human side, and C, are best enjoyed with tongue firmly planted in cheek. I find that the previous MonsterVerse movies tried to be a little more grounded and a little more serious, and I, I like them for that a great deal. And and this is a different beast. It feels in a lot of ways more like a Toho movie. So if you like the previous MonsterVerse movies, this might be a bit of a jarring transition. If you're a fan of the Toho Godzilla movies, I think this makes a little more sense. So for me, this was this was a solid 7 out of 10, I would say. All right, so, so I'm immediately thinking of when you when you lay it out like that. I I immediately think of one of our favorite memes from the Road to El Dorado. Both both is good. So I I you know I like both. Um, I I'm hesitant to going like an overgrounded gritty thing, but um, I would give this a solid probably B to a B plus. I think it's I think it's definitely carried by the few and far between action scenes. Um, particularly that, that round three in Hong Kong was just magical. And it was just one of the most beautiful things I've seen in, in a long time, you know, action wise. Um, so I, I would go B to B plus and, and I'm glad to have watched it and I'll probably watch it again soon. Yeah, I could agree with that. I'm definitely going to give this one another shot. All right. That wraps up our byword big talk for this week. Godzilla versus Kong. Go watch it. Definitely. If you can find a drive in or if you feel brave enough to go catch it in the theater, definitely recommend that. Um, or you can watch it on HBO Max. Um, stick around after this, our final break. We're going to hit you with two more nerd commendations. All right. Final segment time. We are going nerd commendations. Dave, you're hulking up for this one. What's going on? Yeah, I need to talk for a second about The Immortal Hulk, uh, a series that is actually only about five issues away from coming to an end, and it's completely passed me by, and I finally got persuaded into giving it a shot. I'm about four or five issues into the series right now, and I am absolutely in love. I know there are a lot of people out there that are much further along in this one than I am. Um, please, don't spoil it for me on social media or something. Don't don't tweet at me with like everything that happens. As of right now, though, I have to say it's probably one of my favorite comic book takes on the Hulk. So in this particular story, uh, a fantastic book uh, that is written by Al Ewing and has art by Joe Bennett. Uh, Bruce Banner is assumed dead, but he is very much alive and is sort of wandering the countryside uh, in the Bill Bixby fashion, I guess and is sort of looking for wrongs to right, and then he lets the Hulk out to take care of those wrongs. Only, man, 
This is a little darker, and it seems to be very much tinged with an influence of, of horror. And that influence seems to be slowly growing as I progress through the issues. The writing is is very, very sharp. The Hulk is almost a separate character with his own intelligence. He's not just, you know, Hulk smash. He He kind of monologues a few times. And the connection and the dynamic between Bruce Banner and the Hulk is really fascinating in this. In addition to that, the art is absolutely stunning. It's gorgeous. Um, and it just really works as a whole package so far. I'm so excited to be reading this book. And I'm very excited to see where it's going. I'm actually saddened that I know, hey, I'm five issues in. And by the time this sucker hits issue 50, it's going to be over. Because it's such a good ride so far. Uh, it, it's I cannot say enough good about it. Uh, it's probably my favorite take on the Hulk ever. Uh, it's it's spot on with what I would expect from a Hulk book. I love it. Yeah, so the fact that you love this doesn't surprise me. I've also heard great, great things about it, but I heard that there were definitely like horror influences. I'm like, oh God, that's something Dave will love. Um, but um, I, I love everything I've read by Al Ewing. He's writing Sword, uh, which is a an, an X book now, uh, Krakoa-based book. Um, and, and I'm really, really enjoying that. And everything that I've heard about his work is, is really, really good. Um, so I'm definitely going to check this one out. I have, I don't think I've ever read a single issue of a Hulk comic. So I am, it's just not a character that I, you know, run to read about, uh, you know, unless he's, you know, in an Avengers title that I read, but, um, you know, with Al Ewing's name being attached, um, I'm excited to read his, his Avengers books, um, uh, go back and read his Ultimates books with, uh, you know, one of my personal favorites, Monica Rambo, being featured, and Blue Marvel, another underrated, amazing character in the Marvel universe. So, um, Al Ewing is is at the one of the top of my to read lists. But uh, I, I'm super excited that you dug this because I, I thought this would be right up your alley when I heard what it was about. Uh, apparently, you know me well because this horror stuff always works for me. Now, Chris, you and I uh, started playing the your next nerd commendation sort of at the same time, and I'm really excited to hear your take on it. What have you got for us? So I have to completely give you credit where credit is due, and I almost didn't want to do this because I didn't want to step on your toes, but you told me about this game, um, and just because I've had some more free time, I, I've been able to play a little bit more than you. Um, you know, hashtag newborn babies, right? <laughs> um but um immortals phoenix rising um now this is going to be a really interesting considering we just gushed about how much we love uh the legend of zelda breath of the wild in our last episode this is basically the legend of zelda breath of the wild in ancient greece like it this game is very very derivative when it comes to the climbing mechanisms the stamina wheel um, the, the shrines from Zelda have, you know, turned their ways into the vaults of Tartarus, uh, in this. So it, it is very, very, it's like that meme where it's like, Hey, do you mind if I copy your homework? Yeah. Just change it. So it doesn't look too much. Like it's, it's very, very derivative to the point where like, I initially was like, what? But uh, the, the more that I dive into this and the more that I play it, I really, really enjoy it. I'm a huge mythology nut as I've you know referenced on previous you know, uh, episodes. I, I really, really dig it. Um, for me, 
the the best part of this game is the the nonstop banter back and forth between Prometheus and Zeus. The the writing in this is so sharp and it's so funny and there's so many good zingers and puns. It's really, really great. Um, so just basically set the premise here. Um, Typhon, this, I believe he's a Titan, but basically Typhon, this powerful being, has thrown all the gods out of Olympus and taken over uh, the Golden Isles and, you know, they're, the essences of all of these gods have been trapped away, hidden away. You know, for example, Ares, the god of war, this big, bravado, muscly man has been transformed into a chicken. So super, you know, emasculating. Very funny. Um, Aphrodite has been turned into a tree. Um, you know, Hephaest- Hephaestus has been turned into a robot. So it's just really, really interesting gameplay. The, like I said, the, the by far the best things are the the jokes, and they really, really are well done and well written. But um, I'm probably about 50% done on the main campaign, and then I've got the DLC to look forward to. But thanks again, Dave, for making another nerd commendation for me to make into a nerd commendation. But Immortals Phoenix Rising, it's a really fun game. Yeah, you know what? I'll, I'll echo what you just said. I, I've enjoyed it a great deal, too. I've made no secret of the fact that Breath of the Wild is probably... One of my all-time favorite games. And, you know, here here is a thought uh, that I had while I was playing uh, Immortals. As a teacher, when I see something that another teacher does that works, that captures the kid's imagination and that helps them learn, I, I steal that. I, I'm not worried about it at all. I just I take that idea and I make it my own and I do something different with it in the context of my own class. And usually that's pretty darn successful. And I wish sometimes video games would be a little more willing to do that. I think that Breath of the Wild, and uh, it, it kind of innovated a lot of really good ideas. For me, the very first one is just the idea of how they use stamina, the stamina wheel, and the fact that you can literally go anywhere in this world. And so seeing that copy to some extent in Immortals, I think was well, it was the right decision. It is a great mechanic that should be used more often. So I have absolutely no problem with the fact that Immortals feels a little bit derivative because they did take uh, the formula of what made Breath of the Wild great in in terms of gameplay, but then they overlaid a completely different kind of story and a completely different kind of tone over it. And man, the humor really makes this game shine. Um, So the gameplay mechanics being similar to Breath of the Wild, I think, is actually a huge plus here. The developers here were smart enough to see a good thing and say, you know what? This works. I want to try this. So, yeah, I love Immortals Phoenix Rising from the humor to the to very Breath of the Wild-like gameplay. It's a lot of fun. And I, I wholeheartedly second your nerd commendation, Chris. Yeah, it's really interesting that you say that because um, in, in the learning management system that we use where we work, um, I, I have been, you let me be an observer on yours. So like a lot of the, your layout, I just copied and pasted into mine and this just changed it to Spanish. Um, so I totally did exactly that. And I, and I really feel like that's exactly what happened here. They lifted the same bare bones, but then they tweaked a little things that they wanted to do differently. Um, the first one that jumps out to my mind, one of the controversial things about Breath of the Wild we talked about last week was the whole breaking weapons and no weapon is, pun intended, immortal. It, c- it can be broken. Even the best weapons in the game can be broken. 
they did very much went in a very different direction, but a very interesting direction. So just, you know, here's another pro tip about Immortals is no matter this, this game is fully customizable. So, you know, as is popular with most games, you have like set bonuses or gear bonuses, but let's say, and, and I've been trapped like this before. I like the bonus that, you know, an outfit gives me, but I think it's butt ugly. Um, so you can equip the the armor, but then change to get the set bonus, but then like change the visualization so it looks like another piece of armor or outfit that you think is cooler looking. Um, and the same thing happens with the, you know, the swords and the hammers uh, and, and the the bows of this. So another feature that I like is with your weaponry specifically is they all stay the same level. So if you like the particular set bonus of one, when you upgrade your swords, all your swords get up, you know, leveled up. And and so it's like this holistic thing when it comes to, and it's really different than anything I've seen before in the game, uh, the weapon system. But, but I really dig how they took like the bare bones of something that was successful and that I love and then tweaked it in areas that they, they wanted to just do differently so they could tell a different story yeah absolutely i can agree with that it just it turned out really well and it's such a, such a fun game um and and really not, a, not enough people are talking about how very good this game is it's just it's a lot of fun to play and it also has other influences y'all know how much i love assassin's creed this was like breath of the wild meets um assassin's creed odyssey with the greek influence you know that's a lot of games and like the popular and good not to mention it's made by ubisoft who makes um you know assassin's creed games so there's like a lot of things here's another bonus feature if you're playing on xbox or if you're playing on playstation um they have this app called ubisoft connect and you've played other ubisoft games you get bonuses from that so where i play literally every assassin's creed game ever i have a bunch of bonus gear bonus outfits that are super super cool so i have like the assassin's creed odyssey um you know outfit that i can equip on my character because i'm playing those other games so definitely if you play a lot of ubisoft games be sure to check that out because you get some exclusive stuff that's really really cool but um yeah it's, it's super fun and i really really enjoy it yeah absolutely all right, that wraps up another episode of the Nerd by Word podcast. Thank you so much for sticking around and listening to our thoughts and our ideas and our reactions to Godzilla vs. Kong. Be sure to hit that subscribe button. Give us a five-star rating, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, or nerdbyword.com. And of course, find us on social media at Nerd by Word on Twitter and Instagram at the Nerd by Word on Facebook. You can also find us individually on Twitter and Instagram at that Nerd Dave and at that Nerd Chris. We'd love to hear what you think of the show. Some suggestions for what you'd like to tackle us to tackle in the future. Uh, come find us on social media. And it's hard to believe that we're closing in on our 52nd episode, Dave, which means we've almost been at this for an entire year. It's hard to believe. It feels like yesterday when we were talking about our nerd origin stories. But if you're a fan of The Office like me, I haven't gotten Dave to take the dive yet, but he will. Um, but <laughs> if you are a fan of The Office, you know all about the Dundies. And so for our one-year anniversary, 
we're going to have the nerdies. We're going to have a lot of podcasts do this about like the year, uh, end of the year rewards, but we felt it was, was better to do it. This is the end of our year. So we're going to be looking at special awards. You know, what's the best comic you read this year that was from this year? Um, what's the best back bin thing that you found for the first time? So it could be an old book from the seventies or eighties that you read for the first time. Uh, just a bunch of fun, uh, awards that we're going to be given out. So, Episode 52 coming in six short weeks, it flies faster than you realize, is going to be episode 52, The Nerdies. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez and show art by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available.